the, <clears throat> the story of humanity, somewhat tragically, is uh, often one of conflict and struggle. If we look back at human history over time, we find it shot through with very much conflict and struggle. If we turn on our TV any day, it's full of conflict and struggle. We turn the volume down a little bit. Seems is it echoey at the back there? Oh yeah, that seems better. And of course, because our outer activity is very much a playing out or a representation of our inner life, we find our own inner human life very much bound up with struggle and conflict. Struggling to understand, struggling to improve in some way our situation, struggling to move forward, to get what we want, to achieve certain things, struggling to be happy, struggling to be peaceful. The whole of our human existence, in a way, is a search for some kind of contentment. And within that kind of loose definition, probably whether people are practicing any kind of spiritual practice or not interested in that at all, for most people that would work as a definition of what's most important. Everybody wishes to be happy. And the movement towards the aspiration for some kind of happiness, contentment, peace, is often some kind of struggle with the motivation that brought us here on retreat the w- is the wish to be happy the wish to discover something worthwhile something authentic maybe something profound something transformative maybe just something useful and in arriving here in being here we might notice just over the day or two of sitting here some elements of struggle struggling to do the practice struggling to understand the teachings struggling to sit still maybe so we can recognize whether we look in the the wide generality of uh, life that newspapers reveals to us or human history or whether we just look in our own moment to moment experience we can recognize this element of struggle and then we have the kind of offer or the possibility the promise of some degree some kind of salvation from that struggle some kind of end of struggle, the promise of peace, 
eternal peace, maybe. And the role of religion has been very much the, the promise of that kind of salvation. Unfortunately, or too often with religion, and somewhat inconveniently for us, the promise of that salvation is after we've died. And uh, some of us aren't maybe too convinced as to whether or not we'll be around to enjoy that peace and salvation after we've died. So, feeling perhaps unreassured by the promise of a distant salvation beyond death, there's also the wisdom traditions, spiritual traditions, which rather than promoting an ideal of what we might call salvation, have been interested in looking rather at something far off, something after death, have been encouraging us to look at where we are right now. And putting the context of some degree of putting the context of that salvation, peace, end of struggle, putting that in the context of this very life, this life that we're living now, and how to meet that. So rather than an ideal or a promise of something far away, the wisdom traditions, in which I would include what we're doing here, encourage us to start from where we are. And so I'd like to look a little bit this evening at that idea of starting from where we are. What do we see, what do we meet when we look at our experience? And how can that be revealing for us? How can that bring forth understanding? So, in starting from where we are, we acknowledge what we find. It's quite different from the, the more kind of religious or dogmatic approach, which sort of tells us what to believe in or tells us how to be. We shouldn't be angry, we should be kind, we shouldn't be hateful, we should be compassionate. And of course that's very noble and we might aspire very much to live a kind and wise life. To not be angry or cruel in any way. But there's a big gap between this aspiration of living a noble and wise life and the poor miserable state I find myself in at the moment. And the idea of how I should be doesn't really help me at all to cross that gap. I may feel very uh, beautifully that I really don't want to be angry. I see the kind of painful consequences for myself in being angry. I see the painful consequences for others. And I really don't want to, be, to live in that way. But unfortunately, we just, it doesn't really work to just decide, okay, 
I won't be angry anymore. If it did, we could save ourselves a lot of trouble, make a few nice decisions and all go home. We just kind of read out the Ten Commandments maybe to ourselves. We'll all agree to live like that. And full peace and harmony forevermore. But unfortunately, we find ourselves in this life with all kinds of ingrained and established habits and patterns and complexes and drives which seem to lead us into, into painful, distressing, confusing ways of acting and behaving. So, wisdom teachings, rather than telling us how we should be, are interested in how do we find ourselves? How are we? And that's very much what we're engaged in here, in our practice together, is looking to see what's the fact of this moment? We have this extreme, extraordinarily simple instruction that we've been working with today, which despite my various embellishments and descriptions, comes down to sit down, pay attention, breathe in and out, no problem so far I hope, and know that that's happening. Breathe in and out and pay attention to it. Extraordinarily simple. And yet, what do we find when we do that? We find an awful lot of stuff that goes along in there. And to come back to anger, as I mentioned just now, we find that we're capable of anger. So rather than having an ideal, an idea that, oh well, I'm sure the Buddha wasn't angry, I'm sure being angry isn't what meditation practice is about, I, I shouldn't be angry, there's something wrong here, I'm supposed to be meditating, I'm supposed to be attending to my breath, but I'm angry, it's all going wrong. Rather than that ideal of what should be happening, we're encouraged to face the fact of what is happening. Ah, there's anger. So rather than treating it as a wrong experience, wisdom teachings invite us to see what can be learned right there. In the midst of this experience, in this case anger, And for some, that may be the case just over the day or two of being here, of having either some momentary um, irritation with somebody taking too long in the food queue, maybe, or somebody making uh, strange noises in the bed next to us. Or it might be something we've really got very worked up about, and we find anger being a kind of really constant companion on our cushions as we fume about our families or our relationships or our colleagues or ourselves or something like that. So what can we do with the hot, uncomfortable relentlessness that's sometimes there with anger? One thing that's very helpful is to recognize the fact of anger 
and how it moves, as distinct from the storyline that anger has. We're often very quick to buy into the storyline because it makes our anger feel justified. So the person next door, snoring in, snoring out in the bed at night. It's a good opportunity for us. Sometimes difficult to be mindful of our own breathing. Here's somebody giving us full volume of their own breathing. We can just be mindful of theirs maybe. And, and so on. But rather than seeing it as a great opportunity presented to us, to further our practice into the night. Anger is there. Why did they put me in a room with this guy? Or doesn't he realise he snores? Or whatever it might be, can fill in the gaps. So there's a snoring going on and we get progressively hotter and more tense and we start to sweat under the covers with the anger. So there's the storyline going on about why they put me in this room, how terrible this guy is, what I'm going to do to him when he wakes up, what I'll do to him before he wakes up, maybe. The mind can move into revenge fantasies, you know. We're probably just about steady enough to not go and put the pillow on them. But in the fantasy life, we're capable of all kinds of disastrous counter-attacks. So there's the storyline. And then there's the, the fact of how anger actually presents itself, how it really feels. It's easier, and it's more habitual, to just go into the storyline, because then we feel that we've really got good cause to be feeling so hot and agitated. It takes the, the focus away from us and onto the other person, and how terrible they are, and how it's their fault, somehow, that we're feeling this way. But when there's some steadiness of attention, some willingness to meet life, you can focus on the fact of that anger, the way it feels hot, itchy, uncomfortable, the way it tends to tighten the belly, the way the chest kind of can become very, very hot, the breath starts to come fast, the shoulders lift up maybe jaw clamps, the brow furrows. At least some of these symptoms you probably can recognise as anger. But it can be very helpful to really focus on that bodily expression as a way to withdraw from the storyline because the storyline tends to feed the anger more and more. The more we think about this guy and all that he's doing to make us uh, suffer, the more we feel justified, the more we pile on the blame, the more we increase this sense of righteousness or indignation or me as the victim or how terrible it's going to be tomorrow because I haven't slept or, and so on and so on. And because we're so habituated to doing that, even when we, we say, well, let's just slow down and stay with the bodily expression, feel the heat feel the discomfort of anger to feel how it actually expresses itself here as a movement, as an energy any kind of emotional wave is a kind of um, 
amalgam of physical expression and mental expression. And it's very, very helpful to try as much as possible to keep coming back to the way that's expressing in the body as a way to withdraw or take some space from the relentless soundtrack of the mind playing <coughs> the, uh, the storylines of uh, how terrible the, the guy next door is. And of course, because we're so habituated, even with the best intention, okay, breathing in, feeling the heat in the chest, breathing out, feeling the, the tension in the jaw, breathing in, I wish he'd stop now. <laughs> we go off there again. And it's, it's, it's okay that that happens. In the moment of, we, we recognise we're back in the story just to disengage. It uh, can really be a whole practice in itself to be with anger in such a way that we have a, a commitment to meet the fact of anger and not buy into the storyline of anger. The storyline of anger keeps on conditioning more anger. And then maybe eventually, when it's finally burned itself out, starts to condition guilt. I really was a bit harsh on that guy. Supposed to be here meditating, instead I'm planning murder. And then, oh dear, then we go into the storyline of next emotional wave. Guilt and blame. How could I waste my time like this? I paid all that money, I set all those good intentions, I had visions of me coming out here of the retreat with kind of light blasting out of my third eye, and instead I was kind of busy mentally throttling the person in the next bed. But right there, in the midst of that movement, the same opportunity is there for us to recognise the storyline of the guilt, all that I've been... uh, doing and what a, what a terrible evil character I am and the fact of the guilt, how that feels the kind of heaviness of that so whatever we find ourselves with in terms of these, these hot, uncomfortable emotional movements that can go on which might at some, any time be one of anger, of resentment of guilt, of fear to see as much as possible can we Stay steady with an intention to stay with the bodily expression, the fact of that happening, so that we can relate to anger as anger, rather than relating to it through the filter of the story of he did this and she did that and all the rest of it. And in that way, we have the potential to transform anger. Not through this great leap of faith towards an idea of I shouldn't be angry, but towards an honest meeting with our lives, a recognition that difficult emotion can be there, and a willingness to meet it and to be inside it. And I'll speak a little bit more about that being inside uh, a little later on. One of the other things that can happen very much 
in sitting down to be present and to pay attention to our life is that we find this uh, bizarre compulsive uh, obsession with anywhere else than here. We've got years, some would say even lifetimes, of past behind us. And even though it's totally and hopelessly and irrevocably gone forever, we seem intent on dredging it up over and over again. So we find the mind sitting down, intention to be present. Oh, I remember when, and off to the past. And the way we go to the past tends to be in one of two ways. Either it's coloured positively, some pleasant memory, or it's uh, coloured negatively, through some unpleasant memory. So when it's coloured pleasantly, we call that nostalgia. Oh, I remember. Some nice experience. So the present experience is dull, uncomfortable, knees are hurting, breath is boring. So then, rather than being able to recognize that there's some boredom, or there's some insensitivity, or there's some sort of fading away of energy, we find this great strategy of going to something much more interesting called past sweet memory. And we replay it, replay it endlessly. And it starts off, oh, nice. Oh. But then we kind of get in a rut with it. And it can become terrible. Like the line of a song that we start singing. Why do we start singing it? Because it's a nice song. We like the song. No, 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 no. I won't start singing one, otherwise you'll uh, have it for the whole of the rest of the weekend with you. But we start off with some sweet memory, line of a song or something, and we find somehow we get ensnared by it, caught up in it. And it goes round and round and round and round until that sweet memory becomes a nightmare. Until that line of a song becomes this ghastly screech. If only we could be free of. The sweet and the pleasant, just through familiarity, through being close to doesn't change. The memory is a memory. The song is the song. Same melody, same words. And yet the, the, the re- reaction, the feeling tone towards it from feeling attracted, feeling it was pleasant, can turn absolutely to if only I could forget about that song, then I could really meditate. Or maybe it doesn't go that far as to become so... Uh, uncomfortable and and nasty but just the fact of it being this memory that keeps pulling us away at first we think oh yes oh yes and we're kind of seduced into that and it's kind of comfortable and hazy and we don't have to attend to this boring old being here in the meditation hall but then at some point oh yes we realise oh I've spent 30 minutes on a beach last summer and uh I should have been here meditating. Then we start to think, oh, what a waste of time. And again, that which started off as a sweet memory, we've become disappointed with ourselves, depressed about our useless progress in meditation. 
Well, the mind can go back to the past coloured negatively. Some previous bad experience or something that turned out the way we didn't want it to or something someone said to us that was maybe hurtful or whatever. And again, we replay and replay and replay. We don't really actually replay the actual experience, partly because it's impossible, because it's gone forever, and partly because what we replay is our version of events. We know that if we ask two people what happened, even last week, let alone in our dim and distant past that we might be remembering, they can have two completely different versions. And yet when we replay our version of events of something that happened, we're convinced that that's the way it was. But we've coloured that based on how we were feeling at the time, and therefore how we interpreted the event, and based on how we're feeling now, and therefore how we show it to ourselves, often what we're presenting is some completely distorted version of what happens. But it fits our mood at the time, so we keep on dredging it up and replaying it and replaying it. And then it becomes a kind of rehearsal for the future. We seem to think that if we keep dredging up all the ways we've not managed to do things very well in the past, that might be some kind of useful preparation for doing things in the future. It's a bit of thin, thin ice, I would say. But we often buy into that. A way in which we go back to a situation where we were maybe at a loss for words or said something stupid. And then we manage to remember now, with the benefit of hindsight, all the witty, wise, uh, snappy remarks we could have said at that time. And we go over and over again, oh yes, da-da-da-da, I could have said So again, we get locked into replaying the past. And the more we do, we give a kind of authority to our memories, whether it's the, the, the pleasant or unpleasant memories. We give them a, an authority that seems to, to, to support our idea of, of who I am, and my history, and my stories, and my past, and all that's formed me and we've got a whole the kind of web of relationships that we see in the past that seems to lend uh, substance or validity to who I am right now but what uh, real relevance does all that have to where we find ourselves right here, right now, in this moment where is all that past history? Pleasant or unpleasant? We just can't find it. Now it might sound obvious that we can't find it, but if we just reflect on that for a moment, the whole of our past history is nowhere to be found other than in an idea about it. And where's that idea happening? Right here. There is no past outside of this very moment. And yet we spend so much time in our lives, or in the meditation hall here, 
being fascinated or seduced or bewitched by our versions of the past. Similarly, of course, if uh, the past isn't the flavour of the day, we easily can go off into the future. Again, coloured positively or negatively. Coloured positively, it expresses as fantasy, hope, desire. This idea we have of how things could be if, if I won a lot of money, if that person on the other side of the hall that looked at me once yesterday in the dinner queue turns out to be the love of my life. If, whatever it might be, we can construct these, what's the expression there? Castles in the air or something. It's quite a nice vision, you know. But that's what we do very often with fantasy life. We construct these castles, these great visions, these great stories, these great kind of projections of how things could be, should be, might be, will be, and based on nothing. What an extraordinary pastime for a human being with this great gift of the capacity to be awake and aware in life. To spend so much time lost in hopeless fantasy. And of course... The projection into the future coloured negatively, which expresses as fear or worry. What if this happens? What if that happens? And the painful and contracting consequences of living our lives through the, the distorting lens of fear. Kind of crippling effect it can have on our capacity to take steps to have courage to move forward to take risks so just the fact of being here and paying attention the opportunity that meditation provides gives us a kind of window on the way in which we spend so much of our lives completely absent from where we are. Absent in the ways that I've just explained in terms of lost in the past or lost in the future. And equally, of course, we can be lost in relation to the present. Lost in endless descriptions, interpretations, analysis of the present so we might have the instruction to be here and attend to our breathing but rather than attending to the breathing because the mind is so strongly conditioned to be endlessly busy we start to describe the breathing oh, coming in filling up the chest stopping a little bit and going out again oh yes 
Bre- I remember. Ah, the bre- I remember biology in school, pictures of the lungs, and then on and on and on. Not going to the past, well, that was biology, but not necessarily lost in past or future, but in the present, filtering the the, the direct current experience through the processes of describing it, interpreting it. And that description, that analysis, very, very easily turns to measurement and judgment. We start to describe our meditation process to ourselves. And we get easily into the painful thicket what the Buddha called the thicket of views and opinions. It's a lovely expression. For those who maybe English isn't the first language, a thicket is like a, a tight, thorny uh, clump of bushes. And that's how constricting our judgment, our measurement, our views about things can be. And there again, just in the course of, of being here, and certainly hearing from people in the small groups today, hearing the, how painful it can be to be locked into judgment of oneself, of others, of this situation, of the crappy teacher up the front. <laughs> and the degree to which we can really suffer under those judgments... One of my favourite examples is the the uh, the way we judge our, ourselves as a yogi. We're feeling restless and distracted and pain knee in the knees, and we open the eyes, and everybody else is immaculate Buddha, sitting like this, and we say, "Oh God, it's just me." Everybody else has got it. By Sunday afternoon, everybody else will be fully enlightened and me, I'll be the same miserable, useless, unenlightened fool that I was when I arrived. Nobody else seems to be shuffling about like me. I'm sure everybody else's mind is focused and uh, calm. And in our kind of uh, depressive swamp that the mind has become, we just kind of close our eyes and go back into this painful and contracted state of uh, viewing ourselves. And then, of course, the person next to us opens their eyes, looks over at us, looks around and thinks... Oh, everybody else is Immaculate Buddha. And me, mm, same story. So we really don't know. How could we know what else is going on in the whole, what's going on in the hearts and minds of others? But our view is completely coloured by our own judgement towards ourselves in that moment. So, one opens their eyes and feels uh, hopeless about themselves. And then the next one, 
Same thing. It, me, I know this because I sit at the front, so I can see one after the other. Son. <laughs> <laughs> so we get caught into this painful view of ourselves. Or we get caught into the opposite view equally. So even though this morning we were busy castigating ourselves for being a useless meditator, maybe this afternoon we come and we sit down and by some miracle, the mind is fairly quiet, breathing is coming and going, we can notice three or four at once, and then we say, aha, I'm really getting the hang of this. Soon I think... uh, Really, I'll be developing all kinds of psychic powers. And uh, and we start to... Same process, it's just judgment. But it's moving in in the opposite direction. Rather than putting down, putting down, it's going towards building up, building up. But in that building up, the same danger is there. If we find ourselves building up, building up, Better, 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 best. There's only one place to go from there. (laughs) Down. So the process of judgment keeps us in struggle. Keeps us in painful, difficult, contracted relationship. In this case with ourselves. I'm so, whatever it is. I'm such a, whatever. I should be, or I shouldn't be. And of course that can equally move outwards to others. He's such a, she's so. So please be wary when you find yourself saying, I'm so, or I'm such. The consequences and influences of judgment Incredibly strong and very painful. When I was uh, first practicing Dharma in India in the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, for some time I remember uh, practicing very intensively and there was quite some development of awareness, but wisdom was sadly lacking behind. And I remember one, one incident particularly coming, coming uh, back to my hut at, at night time and going to put the key in the padlock and just kind of uh, fiddling in the darkness and missing the lock with my key. So awareness was developed just about to the capacity that I could notice that I was fumbling around like a fool, but no wisdom no spaciousness was there. And the judgment came in. I remember, if you were uh, wise, if you were enlightened, if you were whatever it was, you wouldn't fumble around with a lock like that. <laughs> it was just a very small thing, missing the key with the lock. But the, such contraction, I remember, such propensity to judge and be harsh on myself that just a simple thing like that turns into an opportunity for attacking me, myself. And despite 
a lot of uh, extraordinary and and uh, wonderful kind of discoveries through Dharma practice at that time. Really living in the in under the the in the kind of vice-like grip of judgment, of being harsh on myself. And several months later on after this, I was living for some time with a, with a monk uh, in the Himalayas, in uh, two small huts that he had there. And one of the things he was very particular about as a mindfulness practice, and this is, this is quite general actually in Asia, particularly in monasteries, uh, is the way we leave our shoes when we go in somewhere. It's uh, very bad form to leave the shoes messily. Shoes should always be neatly together, placed just at the side. So if, your shoe, if one shoe is off, then you can get into trouble for not being attentive, not being mindful. And the worst is to have one shoe turned up the other way. Because in the East, particularly in India, the sole of the foot is seen as dirty, impure. And it's the height of rudeness to point your foot at somebody like this. And certainly if in a temple or something, it's absolutely uh, not done to ever sit with the feet stretched out towards the front, which would be towards where the, the shrine or the altar is. So to have the, the, one of the flip-flops turned up the other way is absolutely worse, because then it's straight up to God. Sole of the foot, of the bottom of the flip-flop, turned up to God. This was with a Hindu monk, so then the language of God was there. So one day I was uh, inside doing my chores, and as I came out to put my flip-flops on, I noticed the cardinal sin. One was flipped up the other way. First was kind of shock and guilt, and then just straight into the mind I just I kind of heard it coming a rush like a wind through a tunnel I heard the, the kind of rush of you stupid and then somehow in the, just in the midst of hearing it something happened and I realised I didn't have to believe that thought I didn't have to take that on it wasn't really the truth about who I was. It was just a thought, a judgment, a painful uh, stick that I was beating myself with. And I, remember, I just remember sitting down on the, on the step and uh, feeling an immense relief and lightness to see through the the 
this view I'd had of myself for as long as I could remember that if I did something that I that seemed wrong or inappropriate or stupid or whatever it might be that the force of that judgment the force of that self-hatred we could say sounds very strong but that's the movement was there the force of that to create such a, a painful experience such a tight, contracted, fearful way to live and somehow that was seen so clearly just, just in that moment with the, with the flip-flop just in hearing the voice and having enough space around it to recognise it's just a judging thought the whole construct of that self-judge collapsed there was no more support for it as if I was carrying for years this nasty little man on my shoulder had been whacking me every time I you know, missed the padlock with the key or left the flip-flops in the wrong direction or farted in the meditation hall or whatever it might be you know, the weight of the, sitting on my shoulder, the whack around the head. And as if in that moment, I could just say, thank you very much, but <laughs> I can do without that. So there's that possibility for us in, in paying really close and careful attention to what our thought life is doing, what our emotional life is doing, that offers us a way of cutting through the burdens that we've heaped upon ourselves. Of seeing into the ways in which we've been rigidly and cruelly treating ourselves so that when we notice anger or fear jealousy doubt or any other emotional wave when we notice this kind of relentless escaping to the past or becoming seduced into the future when we notice the judging mind with all its uh, tightness and tension rather than them being these problems to get rid of us in meditation is asking for our attention and I think that's something very very powerful I think to see meditation as and to see all that arises in our practice as that which is calling for our attention that which is showing us where to look in order to free ourselves 
Because that which is demanding our attention, we can't ignore it. We can't just push it away. The more we push against it, the more power we give that thing. It's kind of like a spring. You can imagine there's something that wants to show itself in our life. The judging mind is going on. It keeps kind of pushing in. Or some way of blindly reacting when anger is there. It keeps going on. It's pushing its way in. And we say, no, no, I don't want that. That's not how it should be. I'm here to meditate. And we're kind of pushing against that spring. And you can, you know, the more we push, the more we're providing the force for it to recoil, for it to kind of push its way into our life. With the spaciousness of awareness, of knowing, it allows us to kind of just take a good look at that spring and let it do its thing, which is basically going to be boing. It leaps in, it has its life, and it dies away. So, these difficult emotional states that can go on, the constant going here and there, past and future, descriptions of the present, the, the, the judgments and interpretations that we give to our experience, they're kind of like visitors. You know, they come, they show themselves to consciousness, they reveal themselves to us, and they go. And as those visitors that they are, our challenge or our, our opportunity is to welcome them as such rather than trying to keep them out keep ourselves in struggle with to allow them to be our teachers to, uh, uh, to see can we bring ourselves into relationship through careful attention through interest through allowing them to be there in order to see through them to see them for what they are That seeing through is the, the capacity we have to be to make space for, to make room for those visitors, to be spacious enough. When there's space, the spaciousness of knowing that we've been looking at and exploring today then we see that those visitors don't take up so much room. They're not the whole world. They're not all that's going on. We find that, our, our, that life is immensely spacious. It has room for the passing through of our emotional life without that really threatening us. It has room for our difficult mind states to be revealed and to pass through. If we go outside and uh, look up at the, the sky, particularly at night, we can't fail to notice how enormously, vastly, limitlessly spacious life is. It has room for all those stars. It's certainly got room for this 
poor confused soul that only takes up half a cubic meter and yet our life can seem crowded, cluttered, claustrophobic because we've filled it up with this tight relationship viewing the world through our emotional ways viewing that we filled it up with these in, a huge quantity of memories from the past and this huge quantity of projections into the future we filled it up with our judgments and our descriptions and our interpretations no wonder it feels uncomfortable So our meditation practice is one in which we get to stop and take stock of that, uh, that, that cluttered place that, we, that it feels like we're living in. To look around and notice where's the space. To open the window and let a, a fresh breeze blow in. And to see that that which may feel at times constricted and cluttered is existing within the great limitless spaciousness that's available to us. So that our practice becomes a bit one of allowing the challenges and difficulties of our life to present themselves and knowing them within a context that really has enough room for them to be there not by needing to change our experience not by needing an ideal of how we should be or could be or must be but through being as honestly and as sincerely and as intimately as possible right here where we are starting from this experience being where we are now mysteriously, magically we find is good enough is just where we need to be so may our practice together our discovery of life be one that serves ourselves each other and all beings in the wide open discovery of life
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.